Hi, and welcome to the Talking Dirty Business podcast. I'm Margot Prebenda. And I'm Sabina Husseini. We started this podcast with the desire to spill the tea on corporations and all the environmental, social, and governance issues they have. Our episodes are here to help people make more informed decisions, increase public awareness, and just vent on societal issues that blow our minds. Please note that any opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of any company or organization. And all of our research is based on publicly available information. We're here to direct your attention to certain issues that you may not have thought about before. Hi, listeners. If you tuned in the past couple episodes, you'll know that we discussed the issues of sexual abuse in detention centers for migrants in the U.S., particularly the cases around children that just came out, as well as what it's like to work in a detention center, helping migrants learn about their rights and understand the asylum process. Today, we want to dig deeper into the stories of the migrants that I met with in the detention centers. First, I want to explain some of the general challenges that migrants face in getting to the U.S., and then I also want to touch on the actual situations that the people themselves faced, what they went through, and what made them leave their homes in the first place. Just to point out, the average cost for a migrant to get to the U.S. is typically over $9,000. Can you imagine, that's for a single person, can you imagine having to pay $9,000 for a journey, a one-way trip? I mean, we don't even pay that for our flights. And these people that are migrating are usually coming from a place where either they were unemployed or had a job that was maybe paying $10 a day. $9,000 for possibly the worst trip of your life. (laughs) Yeah, true. Pointing out the fact that this is not a vacation. This is like probably going to be the most traumatic experience they're going to have. And they have to pay their, not only their entire life savings, because they don't have that much money in savings. So the reason I point this out is because migrants almost always have to borrow money to get to the U.S., which is really dangerous, in fact, if they didn't have a family member that could give it to them or loan it to them, where do you think they're getting this money? It's probably not coming from someone that's going to forgive their loan if they can't pay it back. And this is something that's really devastating because I actually spoke with some migrants who were extremely worried about their safety going home because they wouldn't be able to pay back their debt. So that's something that we don't really consider when we think, oh, if they came and they were not persecuted before, we can send them home. Well, we're basically sending them back to inevitable persecution with a a loan shark probably that they took money from and they can't pay it back. Exactly. If they weren't persecuted before, there was definitely going to be some persecution when they get back. Yeah. But sadly, I don't think our um, protected grounds include loaning money, not being able to pay back debt, which is, you know, it's really sad. And another thing that is really interesting that I found was that the human smuggling business is increasing dramatically. And there has been, because there's a lot, it's more difficult, there's been a lot more technology and people involved in preventing migrants from getting to the U.S. 
Actually, most migrants now rely on human smugglers. So compared to 30 years ago, 30 or 40 years ago, when maybe half of migrants coming to the U.S. Uh, came with a smuggler, now it's up to 95% of them have to pay a coyote to bring, which will is a person or not a person, it's usually a gang or, you know, human smugglers that bring them to the border. And around $500 million per year is given to these groups smuggling humans across the border. So other than being an extremely lucrative business, what is it that the human smugglers actually do? Where do they find the migrants to begin with? And then how is there an actual better chance for the people to go through with the human smugglers in case I decide to <laughs> become a migrant? Yeah, well, so it's really sketchy because these groups that are smuggling humans, you can imagine, are not uh, exactly, that's probably not their only business. And a lot of them are participating in violence and instability, instability in the regions. So a lot of these are probably associated with gangs and they're not safe. They're not safe people. Like this is not something that you get a smuggler and you're like, ah, I'll be safe because you're actually treated like cargo. And the smugglers bring you to safe houses where you're locked in rooms in basements and you, they can do whatever they want to you basically. Um, this is something that's also extremely dangerous for women, you can imagine. Um, but there, there are stories where they, these migrants have been held places for not knowing how long they're going to be there because they're waiting until the route becomes clear based on the smuggler's opinion. And the smugglers are trying to usually get them in with drugs at the same time. So you're, you're, it's like you're treated like cargo with, with drugs. You're like highly, it's highly dangerous. If you get caught, I mean, you're in big trouble. Um, this is in no way a guarantee that you're going to make it. And you're paying thousands of dollars for this. That's honestly horrible. Like I was laughing before, but just at the whole situation of how absolutely bleak it is. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering the 9,000 goes to the smugglers or is it the whole journey or what, what's the 9,000 for? Well, that's the average cost that's been estimated for the entire journey. But keeping in mind that a lot of it, most of it's going to the smugglers because they have to pay at certain checkpoints along the way. So it's like you can, some people will get you this far and then you're going to have to go further. And so it's usually broken down into, you know, it's like 2000 to get to this spot. Then you can pay three more thousand and get to this spot. And then interestingly, um, which this was one of my biggest learnings in, in working in the detention center. I didn't know that narco gangs controlled the border on the Mexican side. And what I mean by this is that you can't walk up to the border and legally claim asylum the way we expect everyone to do. So if, we, if a migrant comes to the border and claims asylum, according to international law, we're not supposed to turn them away. But actually, they can't do it. The only way to get into the, those borders, apparently, is in a vehicle. But if you came on foot or in any other way, you can't go, you can't just walk up. So the narco gangs that control the border apparently charge $1,000 per person to just 
go to the border. That's like the last step. That's not getting you anywhere. That's just allowing you to pass, which is shocking. And I'm sure the government, the U.S. government knows about this and maybe doesn't mind because it prevents more migrants from coming across. But this for me is really significant because it prevents people from legally coming across, which is something that we've made such a big deal about the fact that the people are trying to sneak across. Well, there's maybe no way for them to come across legally in certain cases. So what you're saying is that the border or the wall won't help at all. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you about that. So this idea of a board of a wall is really, really appalling because we have such high technology already in place to prevent people from illegally entering. We already have blimps with cameras for video surveillance. We have thermal imaging. We have seismic sensors. We have all kinds of motion detection devices. So this you can imagine we already we're a very high-tech society. We have we have the technology to detect people crossing a border without a wall. And I don't understand why money being spent on a wall would increase any security if we aren't already secured with the technology we're using. And not to mention the fact that we have drastically increased the number of border control agents in the past 15 to 20 years. And, and we're spending a lot more of our budget. And this was before Trump. So this has always been an issue and it's not something new, but the idea of a wall is just very baffling because it doesn't seem to be a practical way to change anything. Um, yeah, I, I think the wall baffles a lot of people. Imagine, I mean, my, my uh, very naive mind just goes to, wow, what if we just put all of this money towards climate change research? <laughs> Imagine how much we could possibly be doing. Or towards helping protect children in detention centers, you know? More to the topic, exactly. Yeah. Um, going beyond this, because we can, we can talk about that wall and make fun of it for, for hours. Um, do you have some stories, some specific stories of when you were interviewing the fathers and the sons, what they had gone through, what was some of the, I mean, maybe you can't talk about specific stories, but some of the, the, the issues that they, that they had gone through and how they got the money and what was going on there. Sure, yeah. It's, as I mentioned before, a lot of them, I think pretty much all of them, mentioned that they were fleeing some form of gang violence or uh, physical threats. So a lot of them had proof of harm. They had scars on their body. And the really, really upsetting thing uh, for me was the way children were threatened And in almost all of these cases, because I don't know if, if it's obvious to people or not, but none of these people wanted to leave their home. I mean, it's not something like they just up and decide, oh, let's go travel to the U.S. and live there. No, I mean, their lives are so miserable. I had several grown men start crying to me while they were telling me these stories. And one time... This father was crying because he started thinking about how he had had to leave his other children because it's too dangerous to travel with more than one child and also too expensive. So in the, the, with the men that I met, they had come with one child or actually that's not entirely true. Some of them had come with one child. And when I asked, they all had more children. They had left them behind and were terribly worried about them. But in some cases also, 
they had come with their wife and potentially more children and they're separated from their families. So we don't have currently in the US, we don't have detention centers that hold families. So if you come with your wife, you're not going to be detained with her. And the worst thing is you're put in separate detention centers and you have no way of communicating with them. And then what happens? Potentially one of you is deported and you have no way of letting the other person know. Or potentially one of you requested asylum and the other one didn't know and didn't do it and got deported. I mean, the system is so flawed in so many ways. And there was one father that I spoke with who had come with two children and his wife and his wife and then the other child were taken somewhere else and he had no idea where she was and he had no way of finding her and he didn't know if he wanted to request asylum. Of course, I was saying, well, you don't have a choice, right? Because your option is deportation. But there was also another really, really upsetting case where the father was so worried because his wife was pregnant and was held in, uh, hadn't crossed the border and was still in Mexico, probably being held with smugglers. He told me, the interesting thing is too, is like, they were afraid to tell me certain things. They didn't, because they're also afraid that if they talk about these gangs, these gangs are not limited to their own the countries. They actually are really far reaching, definitely in Mexico and even in the US. So I could tell you some really devastating stories, but um, there have been cases of people, there was one mother who brought her children into the US, uh, finally like reunited them with her in the US. And one of her sons who was 13 was murdered in school by a gang member that was inside the U.S. So there's no ending to the trauma and the persecution that these people are facing. And the ones that did open up to me, it honestly made me sad because I couldn't believe that they were even trusting me. Because honestly, there's, there's not been people that they can trust before. And it was really kind of heartbreaking, not only to try to tell them to trust me when they had no reason to, and then to hear them opening up about these stories that are just so devastating and the family separation, the persecution of their children. A lot of them, their children were being recruited into gangs and they couldn't let them out of the house alone. Um, There was one case where like a four-year-old child was bringing home death threats in his backpack from school, from like daycare. And, you know, it just goes on and on, these stories. They, it's just shocking. And, and this, the saddest thing is to hear the stories from these people and not be able to tell them whether that's enough to request asylum because it's not up to me. It's up to an asylum officer that's not looking to get their full story unless they tell them. And... Uh- I don't know if you knew what happened to the cases that you interviewed specifically, but do you know how many people went on to pass their interviews or not? No, we have no idea. Um, we're not really, we're not allowed to follow up with that. And sadly though, the lawyers that I was working with said that most of those cases were not going to make it. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's one of those things where, we, I mean, in my, from the stories I heard, I think every single one of them had an asylum case. They were all facing really dangerous situations. They were fleeing. I mean, there were stories of their, one of them, his, his wife had been kidnapped. Um, 
one, you know, many of them, their family members had been murdered before, uh, if not their immediate family, their cousins, and the gangs just go after them. And there, there's a, it's all also extortion. So it's really hard to prove that they're being persecuted for a reason that's not like arbitrary, right? So they're supposed to be showing that they're being discriminated for their race or something. That would be a strong case. But in many cases, it's because they're being extorted, meaning they're, the gang comes to their house and says, pay us this money or we kill you. And if they don't pay the money, they're killed. And it's not like that stops. Even if they pay the money, they come back next month and do it again. And they basically become enslaved by a gang. So this is a really serious issue. And to not to pretend like this is not a reason to request asylum or not enough of a reason to be granted asylum is something that is really hard to comprehend. It's really hard to comprehend and it's really devastating, one. But I'm going to play a little bit devil's advocate here. If they're living in these communities where gangs are so prevalent, so... Anybody in that community then can seek asylum. Is that not true? Unless you're in the gang. Um, that's a really good point. Yeah. So if you're not paying the gangs and if you're not joining the gangs, then yeah. So, but <laughs> let's play the other side then. Why are these gangs existing there? And what's the root cause of the instability in these countries? Well, then you might get into it. This is a deeper topic, but... Um, the U.S. plays a really large role in the stability of those regions. And we are also, the U.S. is um, the largest consumer of the drugs that are being sold by these gangs. So we have a responsibility in some ways. And even if, I mean, I, I also agree this is a really serious problem because potentially it could mean that a lot of the populations are eligible for asylum. But if they've left their countries and made the journey there because they've been physically harmed, I don't know how we can say, you know, go back and just deal with it given the situation. It's just, it's a really tricky issue. It's a really good point you make that we can't take everyone, right? But if we're not going to be addressing the, the cause of them leaving these countries, I still don't think it's humane to turn them back to a situation where they're probably going to die. On that note, I don't want to leave this topic with a completely dire outlook. So please do remember that there are things we can do to help with the situation. One is to really scrutinize the political discourse and vote for politicians that actually have an understanding of issues with immigration and migrants and that aren't just suggesting a quick fix like a wall. And beyond that, there are other ways we can help as individuals. For example, volunteering the way I did. There are so many organizations that need help, especially from people with a legal background or Spanish language skills. So if you didn't tune in to the last couple episodes, the name of the organization where I volunteered in Texas was Raices, R-A-I-C-E-S, and you can search them online, and they have an online application process for volunteers that's really well-coordinated, and I would really recommend it. So thank you for tuning in again this week, and please come back again in two weeks for our next episode. 
in which hopefully we'll shift to a slightly more uplifting topic and we'll reveal that when the time comes. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our newsletter on our website to receive a notification when each new episode is released. You can find us at www.talkingdirtybusiness.com.